Coming up on Blue 58, is there something brewing in the Packers' backfield? We talk compensatory picks and sit down for an interview with NFL draft expert Tony Pauline. That's all straight ahead. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the official podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. We are powered by WTMJ Mobile. I am your host, John Meerdink, joined today by co-host Gary Zillavy. How are you doing, Gary? It's a great day to be great, John. Great day indeed, so let's dive right into the headlines. This one, not so much a headline in particular, but something that's been coming together for the past month or so. Where do the Packers go at running back? We ask that question because of a number of things that have come together over the past few days and weeks. Specifically, Adrian Peterson is officially going to be a free agent. Raiders running back Latavius Murray is going to test the waters as well. And today, on the day we recorded at least, Kansas City Chiefs running back Jamal Charles has been released. You add Eddie Lacy, the unrestricted free agent, into that mix, and it seems like something could happen with all these names that have been tied to the Packers. So, Gary, what is that thing? What's happening for the Packers at running back? Well, you've got a couple of different factors at play, like you alluded to. I do think that the free agent market is going to settle out first, and that's going to be where we figure out exactly the plan for Green Bay at running back. I don't anticipate Adrian Peterson, Latavius Murray, even Charles being free agents for very long. Charles is eligible to sign immediately, where Peterson and Murray have to wait until the ninth when unrestricted free agency begins. I don't think in this era of teams wanting to, quote, win the offseason and make a splash and sell jerseys that we're going to see these big names on the market for quite some time. If you remember back to Charles Woodson and even more recently to Jared Cook, both of those free agent targets were on the market for a while, kind of figured out what was out there, and then signed with the Packers. And I think that's a similar case in Green Bay this year at running back. I think that's a very astute, especially when you look at the Packers' recent free agent history, too. I mean, think back to Jared Cook last offseason. The Packers weren't exactly beating down his door when he became available. They let the market come to them. They made sure that they weren't overpaying for anyone, and it worked out for them. Cook was a great player down the stretch, and they didn't shell out an enormous amount of money to get him. I think that's going to be something if the Packers do go after a running back in free agency that they're going to consider and that Packers fans should keep in mind. Sticking with the free agency theme, we're going back to last year in free agency when the Packers let cornerback Casey Hayward walk. He signed with the San Diego Chargers, and the Packers and Packers fans knew that a year from then, they would be receiving a compensatory pick for the loss of Hayward's services. However, at least in my eyes, it looked like the pick that they ended up getting was a little bit lower than we expected. The Packers are just going to get a fifth-round pick for Casey Hayward back, and that was lower than the fourth-rounders they got for both Devon House and Tremont Williams when they left the Green Bay Packers. But Gary, you wrote a piece this week that suggests that may not be the case. Why did the Packers only get a fifth-rounder for Casey Hayward? Well, John, the short answer is I don't know, but I kind of know. Here's what I do know. The formula that determines what the compensatory picks are is a closely guarded trade secret by the NFL. For whatever reason, it's not something that they just put out there for any blogger like ourselves to go in and punch uh, numbers in and see what kind of pick you'd get. 
we do know that the secret formula seems to value the contract the player signs more than it values the performance of the player in the following year. So one year ago, when Hayward left for San Diego, in Bob McGinn's piece talking about Hayward's departure, he wrote in the first paragraph that the Packers are probably in line for about a fifth-round pick in return for Hayward. So it's not a surprise in the sense that because of Casey Hayward's modest three-year $15 million contract with San Diego, the die was somewhat cast for the compensatory selection that the Packers received despite Hayward's Pro Bowl year and leading the NFL with seven interceptions. Going forward, I think it bodes well for the Packers because if guys like Nick Perry, TJ Lang sign big free agent contracts elsewhere, I think the Packers are going to get a much higher third, fourth round compensatory pick in return for their uh, for those departures. I think you're absolutely right. And I think the flip side of this equation is, sure, it may be only disappointing to get a case, uh, fifth round pick for Casey Hayward. But on the other hand, you're getting a fifth round pick for Casey Hayward. I think last offseason, if Hayward had had a year left on his deal and the Chargers came calling and said, hey, we've got this fifth round pick that we would love to give you for Casey Hayward. The Packers make that deal in a, in a heartbeat, don't they? I don't know. I I don't find the Packers to be very wheeling and dealing in that sense. I Maybe, I don't know if I would have traded Casey Hayward for a fifth rounder. I think I would have, considering what the, what the trade market has been for some of the other bigger names that we've seen move around the NFL. I think if you had the chance to trade Casey Hayward for a fifth round pick, you would have. But that's, I guess, neither here nor there. Uh, Gary, off the top of your head, can you name a couple of the other compensatory pick situations that the Packers have turned around? This is another thing that you dug up in your research. Well, the biggest one and the most surprising to me is when Amon Green left the Packers to go to the Houston Texans, the compensatory pick the Packers received was Josh Sitton. Uh, And in the same sense, when Colin Jenkins left, a departure that a lot of Packer fans were rightfully upset about, the compensatory pick was Mike Daniels. So those are probably the two highest profile compensatory picks in Ted Thompson's tenure. There's a couple of other names. You've got Blake Martinez, and uh, on the roster currently, Richard Rodgers was a compensatory selection. But uh, uh, Josh Sitton and... Mike Daniels are the two that stand out on that list. We're going to stick with NFL Draft Talk for our next segment and all you need to know about NFL Draft Picks and and heading into the draft season. We have something new coming up. It's our first ever guest interview, and we're pleased to welcome to the show Tony Pauline. Tony is a draft analyst and the publisher of the website draftanalyst.com. He and I sat down for a few minutes worth of conversation over the past couple days to talk about the draft and what Packers fans need to know as we head towards April. So looking ahead to the 2017 draft, we're starting to get a little bit of an idea how this class is starting to play out. Uh, what do you see as the strengths or the, the positions with the most depth in this draft? Uh, positions of depth uh, are obviously cornerback. I think you're going to be able to get uh, – I'm not really sold on the the, top, the prospects at the top, but if you're asking about depth, you're going to be able to get good corners really through the third and fourth rounds, guys that can develop into starters, that, guys that can play nickel and dime packages. Uh, as rookies in the league. I think the tight end position is also a very strong position. Again,
again, uh, you know, the, the, the no superior talent at the top, but I like the depth really through the fourth and almost fifth round where you're going to get guys who can be starters, guys who can be productive number two cornerbacks. Um, I like the running back class a lot. Uh, that's one position where I really like the, uh, I like the talent at the top. But still, you know, when you get in that third, fourth round, you're looking at guys like Matt Days of North Carolina State, Ryan Hill of Wyoming. All these guys can develop into uh, players at the next level. And it's also going to be a good year for pass rushers, defensive ends in a 4-3, as well as 3-4 outside linebackers. Flip side of that question, where are some positions that uh, that are going to be weak? We're talking about, uh, obviously, we're a Packers blog, so we, we like that talk about uh, edge rushers and cornerbacks, but there are some other positions of need where the, the Packers might be needing some things uh, that maybe the draft isn't so strong. Where do you see those weaker areas? Well, I mean, I'm not a big fan of the quarterback crop, and that's the one that everyone always centers on, unfortunately. Um, I think there's, there's some talent there, but there's an equal amount of questions uh, as far as that talent is concerned. So that kind of concerns me. It's not a good offensive tackle class. I don't think that's a position in need for the Packers. Uh, the, the, the tackles at the top have got a lot of questions, uh, or, or guys with thin bodies of work like Garrett Bowles or Ramzik of, uh, of uh, uh, Wisconsin. Not a good year at inside linebacker. If you want an inside linebacker, you better get one quick uh, because the talent really drops off very quickly there. So those are the three positions that I'm not really sold on. It's an okay receiver crop. Uh, there's no dominant number one receiver that's going to come out of this draft. There are some good second and third receivers, but uh, but I would put them uh, sort of middle of the pack compared to the uh, the centers, the uh, quarterbacks, and the uh, centers quarterbacks and the inside linebackers. You mentioned not liking the top end of the cornerback class. Just generally speaking, not just restricted to corners. Are there any prospects you think may be getting a little bit too much attention? At this point of the year, we're, we're even ahead of the combine yet. I don't understand the, the love for Marshawn Lattimore of Ohio State. I think he's a good cornerback, but, you know, uh, compared to some of the other guys, whether it's Sidney Jones, Marlon Humphrey, even Jalen Tabor, I, I don't think that he's really that much better than the rest of them. Um, so that's, a, uh, that's got a guy who I think is a bit overrated. Cam Robinson, I think, was overrated. Although that's, he's starting to come back to the pack. If you watch the film, it just doesn't, you know, the uh, reality doesn't meet the reputation. As I wrote literally three weeks ago, you know, he may be a good tackle in the NFL, but he's not going to be a left tackle because he's stiff. Although some people are starting to, uh, to catch on to that. And again, I, I think any or all of the quarterbacks. I, I mean, there's always a tendency to rate, overrate quarterbacks primarily because, it's, because of the position, and the position is in such high demand and low supply. But, you know, whether it's Trubisky, whether it's the Sean Watson, you know, Patrick Mahomes is now the new flavor of the month. I think all those guys, you know, people are getting ahead of themselves. But, you know, listen, I, I thought Jared Goff was overrated last year. He turned out to be the first pick of the draft. Uh, you know, I, I was wrong on that account. We'll see if I'm wrong in, in the long term as far as Jared Goff is concerned. Again, the opposite side of that question is who's getting too little attention. We see some guys that fall off boards maybe for bad reasons, the, the people they call the bad body guys or who don't test well. Anybody who's, who's dropping that you're surprised at? I, I, I say Jabril Peppers. I, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, 
And it's not because he's a bad body guy or whatever. I think people just don't know what to do with him. But when I look at Jabril Peppers, I see a guy who is a superior athlete, a guy who makes plays up the field, who makes plays laterally, makes plays in space, makes plays against the run, is a game-impacting return specialist. Uh, he just does so many things well. Uh, I, I'm really anxious to see how he works out. You know, the workouts will kind of dictate whether or not I'm right or wrong, but I, I just see a superior athlete and a very good football player. You know, oftentimes you get guys, you know, who, who work out like Olympians uh, but just aren't good football players, and you get guys who are good football players who are just mediocre athletes. I think Jabril Peppers is a combination of a really good athlete and a really good football player. I just People just don't know whether he's going to be a linebacker or a safety. I think he's going to be a safety, but I, I think his, uh, his game-breaking return skills, you know, are rarely, if ever, factored into the equation when they should be. The combine invite list is out, and it's always sort of a crapshoot with the, the smaller school guys that get invited. Just looking at the class as a whole, any small school guys, those D2, D3 prospects, or maybe the D1 schools that aren't considered traditional powers that we should be aware of? No, I, I mean, I think the bigger news was not who was invited, but maybe, you know, who wasn't invited, you know, uh, as far as the two kids from Mississippi. Uh, to answer your question, no. I, I, I mean, uh, guys like from Shaheen from Finley, uh, from Ashland, the, the tight end, I knew he was, I had a very good idea he was going to get invited, and he did. Uh, the kid from Shepard, Brown, the receiver tight end, he got invited as well he should have been. So I don't think there's any surprises as far as that is concerned. I think the bigger uh, the bigger surprises were some of the the better named or even the lesser named uh, prospects that didn't get invitations that I thought should have received them. Uh, one last question for you: as, as NFL amateur writers, like like we are the the guys who who do these podcasts and blog, like me, I think it's easy to to get ourselves talked into prospects or or talked out of prospects, maybe for bad reasons. How should we try to understand the draft as people who don't do this like you do for a living? It's a long-term process. You know, the fact is this is you have mock drafts and top 100s and, and, and everybody gets, you know, crazed on draft day because, well, I got 18 of the first 32 or I got, you know, I picked 25 guys right in the, in the first round. I, I have to look at it as, as a long-term process because, you know, come draft weekend, all it is is names on a piece of paper. And people get very excited because they make right, uh, you know, right predictions. You know, people sometimes get uh, upset or, 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 or you know, uh, berated because they make wrong uh, decisions on draft weekend. But you have to look at it, you know, in the long term just because somebody was predicted to be a top-ten pick and he was a top-ten pick, but you may look like a hero on draft day. But if the guy never pans out, all of a sudden, those people who were saying in the lead-up to draft day, this guy's ridiculously overrated. You know, he shouldn't have been taken that high. You know, they are the ones who, in the long term, look like the smart people, but people tend to forget about that, if you know what I mean. So, it's you know, you're not just looking at it as to what's going to happen on draft day. You have to have a long-term perspective, you know, if you really want to be um, – if you, I'm trying to think, you know, if you, if you really want to be genuine towards the NFL draft, which is what general managers have to do in war rooms or they're going to lose their job. You know, they're just not looking to be 
right on draft day. They want to pick guys that are going to be there for three, four, five years down the road and be productive players, or they're going to lose their job. So, you know, draft day is just one piece of the puzzle. And when draft day is over, all it is is names on a piece of paper. Getting those names on a piece of paper to translate into production on the football field, you know, is another larger, more important part of the equation that people tend to forget about. Tony, appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Have a good one. A big thanks to Tony Pauline for stopping by to chat with us for a little bit here on Blue 58. You can find his work at draftanalyst.com and on Twitter at the call sign at Tony Pauline. Coming up, we take a look at the next four games on the Packers' schedule. Uh, There are some dark times ahead for the Green Bay Packers, and Gary and I will help you take that particular trip down memory lane. Blue 58! So we've been working our way through, I guess, the the entire 2016 Packers schedule, and we're starting to approach the back half, games 9 through 12. We're taking this game-by-game look at the Packers 2016 for a couple of reasons. First, we're trying to become smarter fans of the Green Bay Packers, both you, the listener, and Gary and myself. The Packers play 16 games a year. It's sometimes tough to keep up with everything that's going on, and sometimes the storyline that kind of emerges in the popular media around the team isn't the whole truth of why the Packers played the season the way they did. So by taking this game-by-game look at the way the Packers played or went through their 2016 season, we hope to be able to tease the ultimate story out a little bit better. Uh, take it a little bit more slowly and maybe a little bit more in-depth than we did the first time around. Gary, what's reason number two? Well, we're also trying to use some hindsight to see the patterns that are coming out. So we can figure out maybe some things knowing what's going to come in the future that uh, we didn't know when the game was going on. And I think a really good example is looking at these last two losses before the run the table comments and the you know the Packers wonderful winning streak to the NFC championship game getting a little bit more insight into just how desperate this team was uh, and remembering some of the fun moments along the way because uh, I <laughs> there's there's sure a ton of them well there weren't too many fun moments in these first couple games so we'll just jump right in here into our look at games 9 through 12 that first game the Packers traveled south, heading to Tennessee to take on the Titans. Set the table for us, Gary. Well, after a disappointing loss to the Colts at Lambeau, the Packers are now starting a three-game road trip, and it begins in Nashville against the Tennessee Titans. Uh, now, at this time, the Packers have a 500 record, but it can be a bit deceiving, and in a positive way. Three of those four losses have been by a combined nine points. So, when they lose... They're not losing by much. On the other side of the ball, the Titans are a really unique challenge for this Packers team. They enter the game with an almost perfect balance between running the ball and passing. Their rushing attack is the third best in the league, and it's led by former Cowboys star DeMarco Murray and last year's Heisman Trophy winner Derrick Henry. The Packers still lead the league in stopping the run, however, Uh, as the Cowboys were the only team to run for over 100 yards so far against this stout Packers run defense. Now, quarterbacking the Titans is Marcus Mariota. He's another Heisman Trophy winner, and he's really the first mobile quarterback the Packers are facing. 
Capers has had to change his defensive scheme because of all the injuries at cornerback, and no longer can he put a safety in the box to stop the run. Instead, both of those safeties are playing deep because our cornerbacks for Green Bay are Ladarius Gunter, Quentin Rollins, Dimitri Goodson, guys that have kind of over time been exposed in the back half of the field. Injuries are really starting to test the Packers' offense. Every running back on the roster is almost hurt. Uh, Mike McCarthy tells ESPN before this game he has 21 different personnel packages in the game plan against the Titans. It's the most variety ever in a Packers in a Packers game plan, and he's trying to find a way to spark a Packers offense that really has only had one good game, and that was in the loss at Atlanta so far. And the narrative here is slowly shifting. It's teasing away from Aaron Rodgers and his poor performance and starting to focus squarely on the long-term futures of both McCarthy and general manager Ted Thompson. So, surrounded by thousands of Packer fans who made the trip to Nashville, the game gets underway. And boy, does it get underway. If you thought, wow, the Packers started very poorly against the Indianapolis Colts, you were crying in your beer not too long into this game in Tennessee. Here are, for example, the first seven things that happened in the Packers-Titans game on November 13th. The Titans start the game with an onside kick. Uh, it is recovered by the Packers at the Tennessee 49. Great. Packers have great field position to start the game. They open up their offensive series with a three-yard run by James Starks and follow that up with another three-yard run by James Starks. Uh, following an incomplete pass to Randall Cobb, the Packers decide to punt from fourth, uh, with fourth and four to go from the Tennessee 43-yard line. That punt results in a touchback, so just a, a change of field position of 23 yards only. After an offside penalty on Mike Daniels, the Titans begin their day with a 75-yard touchdown run by DeMarco Murray. But no worries, the Packers get the ball back right away and proceed to go five and out on their next drive. The Titans proceed to score on a six-play drive that featured a 41-yard pass, a 21-yard pass, and then a touchdown pass from a running back to a tight end. Suddenly, it's 14-0 Titans. Packers go three and out on their next drive. The Titans proceed to score on a nine-play, 71-yard drive. If you're starting to recognize a pattern, you're very good at this. The Titans are leading 21 to nothing after the first quarter, and Delaney Walker, the aging tight end, has five catches for 98 yards and a touchdown. It does not get better in the second half for the Packers. They do so show some signs of life. They score in their first drive of the second quarter to make it 21 to 7. Tennessee proceeds to answer back with a four-play, 75-yard touchdown drive, and believe it or not, it gets worse still for the Packers from there. The Packers go down after the Titans score and kick a field goal of their own, making it 28 to 10. They stop Tennessee on their next drive. And if the Packers score before the half, it could be 28-17 to at the break. However, after the Packers stop the Titans, something very bad happens that affects this player for the rest of the season. Trevor Davis, back to return a punt, muffs the catch, and after a penalty, the Titans take over, having recovered the loose ball at the Packers' 12-yard line. Three plays later, they score a touchdown. The game is now 35-10 to 10 in favor of Tennessee. Good night, Green Bay Packers. It's pretty much academic from that point on. The Titans go on to win handily 45-27. to 27. Now, Gary, the Atlanta draw loss was pretty justifiable, and the Colts' loss is 
I guess even understandable if you believe that Andrew Luck is an elite quarterback, but the Packers got completely worked over in this one. The defense gave up four scoring drives of 55 yards or more, including three of 75 yards or more. How close to you are you to pressing the panic button in this situation? I'm pretty close. The Titans, they have a, a really talented young quarterback in Marcus Mariota in a running game that really got the best of the Packers as their defense begins a, a, to, rece- to, re- to regress back to the main. I just don't think that's an excuse, though, for just how lopsided this game was from the start. I think, like you said, John, the, the way this game started was, was probably the worst start of the season and, and maybe even the worst start of any McCarthy-coached game because it felt hopeless after about two drives. And losing these two games to -to back-to-back AFC South opponents is a little embarrassing if you're Green Bay. So much was made going into the season about how the Packers had the league's easiest schedule and that they could walk to a first-round bye. And that was in large part because of playing this AFC South division. And now the best they can hope for is a 500 record against the AFC South. And there's no guarantee uh, that they're going to make it to 500 because their last game is against the division leading Houston in a couple of weeks. Now the road from here isn't getting any easier and that's why I probably got my hand on the panic button because the Redskins are coming up next and they're a formidable opponent with a quarterback that, in my opinion, is a little more talented than Marcus Mariota. Uh, Maybe not overall, but I'll tell you what, he's 100% better at saying, You like that? And he's liking being franchise tagged now for the second year in a row. A lot of guaranteed mudding heading towards Kirk Cousins. We'll talk about Kirk Cousins in just a second, but first we have to talk about a very ugly week for the Green Bay Packers. So November 13th is the day of the Titans-Packers games. November 14th is the day that Mike McCarthy gives his, at the time, very infamous, well, I'm a highly successful NFL coach, press conference. Those could have been words that were printed on his tombstone as an NFL head coach had a few other things gone differently. But that occupied the media cycle for a couple days in the Packers world. But not for the entire week, because on November 18th, we get the official start of the Does Aaron Rodgers Have Family Problems storyline. That was sparked by an article from Tyler Dunn, formerly of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, now of Bleacher Report, uh, putting up that article. And you could debate the merits of that article until kingdom come, but you cannot say that it didn't affect uh, the storyline surrounding the Packers for the better half of the second half of the season. As for the actual game, this seems to be a winnable one for the Packers, as good as the Redskins have been playing. Washington comes in at just 5-3-1, and one, having beaten the still formidable Vikings the previous week. But quarterback Kirk Cousins is playing very good football. He has passer ratings over 104 of the last seven Washington games and is completing 68% of his passes in that stretch. Washington's defense isn't stellar or even all that good. It seems like if Aaron Rodgers is his normal Aaron Rodgers type self, we could have some kind of primetime shootout in Washington. Also look at this, Ted Thompson making some moves, bringing in some help before the game. Uh, At some point during that week, Christian Michael is claimed on waivers, but he is ultimately inactive for the Packers-Redskins game on Sunday night. Gary, what goes on? Well, the good news is that in the last two weeks before this game, the Packers fell behind early and it got ugly. Well, 
It's a little different story this time because they fell apart late. Washington scores first, but the first score doesn't come until three minutes left in the first quarter when Kirk Cousins finds Deshaun Jackson for a 17-yard score. And by the second quarter, the Packers offense starts to get on the board. Rodgers finds Nelson for a 13-yard touchdown with pressure coming from Sua Cravens. And the Packers even take a brief 10-7 lead in the second quarter after Mason Crosby's 36-yard field goal with four minutes left in the half. Unfortunately, we have another lovely addition of Mike McCarthy's end-of-half clock management going wrong. McCarthy calls a timeout with two minutes and 39 seconds left after a three-yard loss on first down from the Redskins' 25-yard line. Hoping to get the ball back and give Rodgers some time to add to that lead before the Packers go into the break. Unfortunately, two plays later, Kirk Cousins connects with his tight end, Jordan Reed, for 26 yards. And in a couple of plays, Rob Kelly scores on a 10-yard run. And the Packers are now down 14-10 to with about 30 seconds left in the half. Now, after, after halftime, the Packers cornerbacks begin to become exposed. Redskins receiver Jamison Crowder zooms past Quentin Rollins for a 44-yard touchdown, and Pierre Garçon blows past Ladarius Gunter on a 70-yard score in the fourth quarter. At this time in the season, the Packers have allowed 11 touchdowns on throws of more than 15 yards down the field. That's tied for the worst in the NFL with the Cleveland Browns. Never want to be tied with the Browns in anything, believe me. Kirk Cousins avenges this mediocre performance in last year's wildcard round. He completes 70% of his passes, throws for 375 yards and three touchdowns, and meanwhile, Rob Kelly, the reserve running back, scores three times and rushes for 137 yards. For the flip side, the Packers are really struggling to run the ball. Without Kristen Michael, uh, Aaron Rodgers leads the team in rushing with 33 yards, and James Starks and Ty Montgomery split the carries at, the, at running back. There are a couple of bright spots, though. It's not all doom and gloom for Green Bay. Rodgers throws for over 350 yards. It's his best statistical performance of the year. Jared Cook also steps out of the spotlight or steps into the spotlight and shows for the first time just how good of a weapon he could be for the Packers offense. He's targeted 11 times and catches six for 105 yards and a touchdown. And really, if the defense hadn't collapsed late, this could have been a winnable game for the Packers. But by this point in the season, John, there's three narratives about this team. The first one, too many injuries at key positions. The second one, you've got an Aaron Rodgers struggle storyline with his significant on, and now with Tyler Dunn's article, off the field issues keeping him from playing the best. And then the third narrative, Mike McCarthy's message as a head coach is beginning to get a little stale. In reflection, what do you think is the most likely cause for this 4-6 and six start to the Packers season? Well, I think the last six game games of the season kind of redeems his year, but Mike McCarthy's inflexibility during the Packers' losing streak is a hugely undercovered storyline, I think. Despite major personnel issues uh, in the loss of Eddie Lacy and Jared Cook being beat up for much of the season, McCarthy seemed to just keep running the same stuff despite his personnel situation being so, I guess, undesirable. 
you mentioned the different personnel groupings that he ran during the Tennessee game, and that's one thing. But the outcome, the the plays that ended up being run were not the sort of things that you would think would be ultimately effective. Richard Rodgers is a great example of that. Uh, the Packers had a very rough situation with player availability in Atlanta, but McCarthy adapted and they did some great things on offense. Rodgers had a fantastic game. But once he had his, his, his feet back under him, he went back to the same stuff that we've seen from the Packers for years. And it didn't work with the people that the Packers had available. Richard Rodgers was a huge part of the offense over these last three games we've just been talking about. He got 10 targets against the Colts, 7 against the Titans, and 4 against the Redskins until Jared Cook finally exploded. It's really not a winning formula. The Packers just happened to get the right people back in place uh, to pull the season out of the nosedive. So we head from the darkness in Washington to the East Coast still playing at Philadelphia. Five and six are the Packers at this point in the season. And Gary, where do we go from here? Well, the back, their backs are up against the wall in Green Bay. They're third place in the NFC North. And after a Thanksgiving win by the Lions over the Vikings, they're two and a half games behind Detroit at kickoff on Monday night. And after the previous game against the Redskins, the Washington Post said of the Packers, quote, they're pretty dreadful right now and their season is slipping away, unquote. Now gone is the talk of Aaron Rodgers struggling and in its place is a really harsh criticism of Dom Capers' defense. The Packers have allowed 38 points a game during this four-game losing streak and now they're facing off against a talented rookie quarterback, Carson Wentz. Now Wentz is tutored by former Packers backup quarterback and now Eagles head coach Doug Peterson and Wentz has had a pretty good start to his rookie rookie season. He put up a passer rating of about 100 in his first five games and since then he's started to come a little bit back down to earth. A passer rating of about 70 over his last six games. But don't be so quick to put all the blame on Wentz. His receivers aren't really that great and Zach Ertz is a marginal tight end. The Packers' offense, on the other hand, they're facing a pretty tough test against an Eagles defense that has allowed a league-low 9.5 points at home this season. And the Packers' offensive line is down two starters. TJ Lang and J.C. Treader are both out, and in their place are Jason Spriggs and Corey Lindsley starting. And finally, the Packers are a five-point underdog heading into this game. It's just the 21st time in the past five years that McCarthy and the Packers have been an underdog. And since 2011, the Packers have only won four of those times. So it's easy to look back at this game and say, yeah, this is where it all started to turn around. But it wasn't even close to that sure of a thing at the time. The Packers did play better against the Eagles, but not that much better. On offense, the Packers came out fast. They took the opening kickoff and went 75 yards for a touchdown. Devontae Adams caught the first of his two scores on the night. Uh, he beat his man badly on a slant pattern and got into the end zone. But here's the problem. Green Bay's defense back to its old tricks of being terrible. Carson Wentz looked like an all-pro on his first drive, marched the Eagles 81 yards in 11 plays and scored a touchdown. But it gets interesting for the Packers on their next drive. Rodgers and the Packers really start to get hot. The drive culminates with a ridiculous 20-yard touchdown pass from Aaron Rodgers to Devontae Adams. 
After that, the defense get a, gets a stop, and when the Packers can't do anything on their next drive, Jacob Shum drops a punt on the Eagles' one-yard line, and with 3.28 left, the Eagles are cooked, or maybe not so much. Carson Wentz takes them into field goal range, and the Eagles convert that kick to make it 14-10 at the half. Philadelphia receives to start the second half, and suddenly things are looking a bit scary for the Packers again. The Eagles have a chance to retake the lead, but here comes HaHa Clinton Dix to the rescue. After the Eagles mount a long drive, he picks off Carson Wentz at the Packers' 16-yard line. The Packers get a field goal and hold the Eagles to a field goal of their own. Then on the next Packers drive, something very interesting happens. In week 12 of the NFL's, NFL season, finally, someone other than Aaron Rodgers scores a rushing touchdown for the Packers. Fullback Aaron Ripkowski gets in from two yards out. Packers are up 24-13. to But in the fourth quarter, things get shaky again. After a muffed punt by Randall Cobb, the Packers are backed up on their own eight-yard line with just over 10 minutes to go. Say the Eagles get a stop here, they'll probably get good field position and be able to mount a scoring drive of their own potentially quickly. But here comes the knockout punch from Aaron Rodgers in the form of, I guess, to mix my metaphors, death by a thousand cuts. Rodgers leads the Packers on a 17-play, 78-yard drive that takes 8 minutes and 21 seconds off the clock, ends with a field goal that puts the Packers up 27-13. to Philadelphia is done. The Packers win 27-13. to That is the Packers' longest drive of the season, tied for first, with one in the previous week in Washington that was also 17 plays. So, Gary, is the Pack back? <laughs> That's my favorite Stu Gotts weekend observation, by the way. The Pack, beep, is back. Well, are well, they? Well, I don't think they're back quite yet. Like you said, it's it's a lot of the same for the Packers against the Eagles. It's the same old stuff that they fared in the blowout loss against the Redskins. I think Kirk Cousins played one of the best games of his career in the previous game. And Carson Wentz, after a nice touchdown drive to begin the the game, struggled. I'm not I'm not going to put all the blame on him. They need to do a better job surrounding him with some better weapons, but. Wentz didn't play that great. Additionally, Aaron Rodgers' calf injury in the third quarter puts any halt to talk of a late-season run in my mind. After his injury, the Packers have abandoned all plays from under center, and their running game is essentially gone. In 2014, when Rodgers' calf injury happened the first time, the impact was lessened because there was a pretty good team surrounding him, and that team was on its way to a first-round bye in the playoffs. And at this point in 2016, I'm not sure that the team around him can increase their level of play like they did in 2014. Well, they will have a chance to do that next week when the Houston Texans come to town. After their win in the over the Eagles, the Packers are back to within a game of 500 who would have thought that was a promising development for the Packers? Houston comes to town a little bit undermanned uh, and a little bit underachieving as well. They are 1-4 on the road over their last five road games, and they won't have their defensive stars, Jadavian Clowney or J.J. Watt. The Texans do have some pieces on offense. 
they have running back Lamar Miller and wide receiver DeAndre Hopkins. Neither one of them really game breakers, but very, very solid players, especially when you consider uh, Hopkins, uh, in Hopkins' case, how poorly the Packers' secondary has been playing. Miller would ultimately finish the year 10th in the league in rushing, so a formidable challenge for the Packers there. But if the Packers are going to bounce back, you think it might be in a game like this. They're at home. They're facing quarterback Brock Osweiler, who is an objectively horrific NFL quarterback. And if they're ever going to have something resembling a defensive performance, it's going to be, you figure, against a team like Houston. For me, it feels like we're in the we'll-see portion of the season. Going into this game, to me, it felt like, sure, the Packers beat Philadelphia, but how will they do the rest of the season? Uh, We'll see. I agree, John. It's it's very much we'll see. And 14 days ago, it, there wasn't any we'll see. There wasn't a lot of hope. The kind of hope the Packers had at this point was the Lloyd Christmas, so you're telling me there's a chance kind of hope. But the Packers and Texans are tied at seven after three quarters in a snow globe of a game. And the Packers used two fourth quarter touchdowns to pull away. Now, this game's signature moment came when Aaron Rodgers finds a wide-open Jordy Nelson for a 32-yard touchdown in the opening minutes of the fourth quarter. Now, the defender covering Nelson, Charles James of Hard Knocks fame, slipped and fell. Nelson's all alone, and it's an easy pitch and catch from Rodgers to Nelson, and it broke, at the the time, a 7-7 tie. Now, as we said earlier about this game being a bit of a snow globe, the weather really made an impact on the stat sheet. It took Rodgers until late in the third quarter to eclipse 100 yards passing, and he did appear limited after that calf injury the previous week against the Eagles. It seems like every time Rodgers breaks the pocket, all the fans of the crowd are holding their breath, hoping that he doesn't go reaching for that calf once again. Now for Nelson, on the other hand, he's starting to come back into his own and playing at a really high level. Now the talk for a potential Comeback Player of the Year award is kind of picking up some steam for for Jordy Nelson. He finishes the game with eight catches, 118 yards, and and one touchdown. Meanwhile, John, you, you mentioned that the Packers might be able to have a solid defensive performance against Brock Osweiler and the Texans, and... I wouldn't say they had a solid performance, but things are starting to stabilize. It's the third straight game for Julius Peppers with a sack, and he passes Michael Strahan for fifth place all time. Now, Osweiler, because of, I don't know, because he's Brock Osweiler, he's refusing to throw the ball downfield, and he's averaging about five yards per pass. And in doing so, he really helps out a Packers secondary that had historically been getting burned deep we talked about those 11 touchdowns on throws 15 yards or more down the field Um, then it allowed the Packers to hold the Texans to just 13 points so John all wins count the same but the past two weeks have been pretty ugly wins against an underperforming Philadelphia and Houston squads next week's going to be a big game you've got the division leading Seattle Seahawks a perennial NFC superstar coming to Lambeau Field. My question to you is this, where do the Packers go from here? Well, to be honest, I felt like the Packers were going home from here because all this success or the success of the last couple weeks kind of felt like a mirage because both opponents they beat, the Eagles and the Texans, have pretty big yeah buts attached to them. Sure, they beat the Eagles, 
but Carson Wentz is not playing super well at this point of the season. They beat the Texans, yeah, but Brock Eisweiler is pretty terrible, and they seem to have some difficulty putting the Texans away, or at least kind of getting over the hump to the point where they could really put the Texans away. With the Seattle Seahawks coming to town next week, it felt like uh, it's been nice to see some signs of light from the Packers, but a real football team is on its way, and they're just going to put us out of our misery. But we will have to talk a little bit more about what the Seattle Seahawks and the Packers had to say to one another next week as we head into the final quarter of the regular season. Hey, Gary, while I got you here, do you happen to know off the top of your head what number Aaron Rodgers wore while he was in college? He wore two of them, actually. Oh, um, I knew he wore four at Cal. He did, what did he wear at Butte? He did not wear four at Cal. He wore eight at Cal and four at Butte Community College. He wore four as a tribute to Aaron, or to Brett Favre while at Butte, doubled that to get number eight at Cal, but things got complicated when he got to Green Bay because someone was already occupying that number. Who was that, Gary? Well, let's see. Rodgers was drafted in 2005, so number eight. The last number eight I remember is uh, Applebee's finest, Ryan Longwell. It was Ryan Longwell, and at the time, Rodgers asked Longwell if he'd consider giving up the number eight so that Rodgers could wear his collegiate number. Longwell declined, so Rodgers took his previous college numbers, four and eight, added them together, and got the number 12 that he wears today. Gary, I think that's about a show for today. Where can the people find us online? Well, on that note, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.thepowersweep.com. If you're a Facebook or Twitter user, you can find us on those social networks. We are at The Power Sweep. If you'd like to send us an electronic mail, sure, go for it. Our email address is thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. We really love to hear from you guys. Uh, you're the reason why we do this show. We love interacting with you, trading emails, tweeting back and forth. It's so much fun for John and us uh, in conjunction with WTMJ Mobile to, to be able to uh, put this podcast together each week. and. You help make Blue 58 and the Power Sweep better, and you're helping make all of us smarter Packer fans. Smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better fans of the Packers are what we all want to be. For Gary Zillavy, I'm John Meerdink. We will see you next week on Blue 58.